Can everyone hear me all right? Does that work? Okay. Can everyone see me all right is probably the better question. <laughs> I don't know how Wadad does it time and time again. Um, so anyway, like uh, I was so very well introduced, I am Carrie Clement. Um, and I will be working with blazes and trails, specifically ghost trails, which I'll explain a little bit more in a bit. And um, in Yellowstone. Um, but a brief overview of my master's thesis, probably because I've put so much blood, sweat, and tears in it that I feel like I have to get it out there somewhere, um, or the boring bits. So essentially what I'm looking at is environmental navigation, which is a fancy word for how do people use the environment to get around Yellowstone. Um, so the major questions that I'm working with are how do people get around in the space of Yellowstone or in the environment of Yellowstone. Specifically, I'm looking at Euro-Americans. Um, and there's some complicated reasons for that, which I'll try and get into in a little bit. But partially it's due to the fact that a lot of, for the, a lot of them, a lot, the space was, and very purposefully, new to them. And I put new in quotation marks in everything I ever write about it. So please realize I'm saying quotation marks. Um, but then how is that fluid environment and fluid space then mapped? Okay, um, and then what effect did the land itself actually have on people and as they're going through this environment? How did the land then affect them? And how does the land still affect our trails today? And how does our land, the land then pop up or disappear on our maps? Okay. So probably the more interesting part, where do these questions come from? And anyone who's spent any time in the backcountry in pretty much everywhere, but especially Yellowstone, which I think is an interesting, unique part to Yellowstone, they have war stories. Humor me for a moment while I tell my war story. So and in this picture, you can obviously tell that it's me. And the man on the horse is my husband. And these are some horses that we took into the backcountry of Yellowstone about three or four years ago now. And I was actually on, not supposed to be there. I was substituting for his cook um, as we were up on the Mirror Plateau. I guess I should have prefaced that by saying my husband worked as a professional backcountry horse guide for a few years. So we were up on the Mirror Plateau which the Mirror Plateau is infamous for not being easy to be on, to be in that space, to be in that environment, to be, especially with horses. It's not fun. But we were even going beyond what we'd, you would consider a quote-unquote normal spot. We were going off trail, which a lot of Yellowstone people will instantly go, you can't do that. Really? Um, you can't? <laughs> but you can if you can't. And that makes a silly statement, but if you know where you're going and you know what you're doing and you know the right people to talk to, you can. Fortunately enough, we did. But camp number two, if you can see that very small, small map, we were going up camp number two, which is way up <coughs> Pelican Creek, off trail. But then the question then becomes, how did we know where we were going? Well, my husband's boss is an outfitter and he knew where he was going because he could follow the trails and he'd been there once before as an 18-year-old boy. <laughs> but he knew where he was going because he could follow the blazes and he could follow a map 
even if the trail was not on the map. And he knew where we were going, he knew the camp that we got to because there was an elk skull hanging in a tree. He said, oh, we're here. <laughs> that should have been my first clue that something was going to go terribly wrong. But long story short, we end up with several horses being run off in the middle of the night by a very angry bull buffalo 26 miles back to the trailhead. The horses are blazing their own trail back to the back to the trailhead because they're so scared of this buffalo. But to be fair, we were also in his territory where there hadn't been humans in a very long time. Okay? I was also but the horses were also making their own trails. It was nightmare. The black horse that you see in the picture there got his lip sliced all the way from the front, all the way almost back to his jaw with one of those yellow tree tags that you see when you're going through Yellowstone in the middle of the night as he's being run off. Um, and so we had to do some backcountry stitching on the poor old guy. He's like 26 years old. Um, and then we make it back to camp number one on the very night, last night out there after we've had to do all this, you know, impromptu field medicine and so on and so forth, and I get to watch a Widowmaker miss my husband by five inches, which if you know anything, a Widowmaker is a dead tree that's right by my husband. And at that point, I was just ready to be done, and, and I think everybody on that trip was just ready to be done. But the point of that war story was as we were going through, especially from Camp 1 to Camp 2, as we were going up through there, I kept going, how do, how do these guys know where they're going? Because it's not mapped. But yet it's on the map because the topography is there. But then how do they know how to get there? And quite simply, it was because they were following trailblazes. So then what do these trailblazes look like? There's a lot out there. And I'll be honest, when I started working with this project, it was a bit crazy because it was a hard to find some of them and then they, some of them were so common that it was almost too much data to work with. But in Yellowstone there are some commonalities. So I'd like to, if I can take a moment of your time, go over some of these commonalities. One, which the, this photo is, was actually taken by Aubrey Haynes in I think 1962. Um, which Aubrey Haynes is kind of the one of the quintessential uh, Yellowstone historians. Um, but this is up uh, Spurgeon's Beaver Slide. I think I said that correctly. Um, but this is just kind of your standard blaze, trail blaze, just your slash blaze. There we go. I'll get the right words out eventually. But this is a standard slash blaze. And from the outfitters that I've talked to and some of the sources that I've read, there's several ways in which you can do these slash blazes. Is you can, it's either done by somebody, obviously a trail crew walking along with a hatchet. I've also heard stories of trail of, of out, uh, um, people on horses as they're going along, marking them. Um, I am more inclined to believe some of them are actually horse blazes simply due to the height um, because they, they do tend to get quite high and while yes, trees do grow very fast and very quickly, sometimes three or four feet is a bit much, especially in where those trees were growing. 
Um, so that's your typical kind of slash blaze. And I'm sure most of you, especially if you've spent any time in the backcountry, have seen some sort of a variation of that. It's kind of a very common blaze to see, even outside, of, you know, well, especially outside of the park. Okay. This is also one that you will tend to see a lot. It's called what I've heard it called eye blaze. And um, we, my husband actually took this photo like two weeks ago. Um, and this is a very standard blaze used by the Department of the, uh, um, I'm sorry, let me back up, used by the Forest Service. And I actually just found out this week exactly what it means. I had a very, very educated guess, and I was right. <laughs> Which, as a scholar, that's like the best feeling ever. But what it is, is it's Morse code for the letter A. Department, the Department of Agriculture, Forest, okay. Um, uh, and what's interesting is there's very few of these within the park, but they're kind of all along the border. And you'll see a few. They'll pop up every now and then, but for the most part, they're on the border. Well, another type of eye blaze that you will see in the park is a capital I for Department of the Interior, which, as the stories that I'm hearing filtering down, essentially became an interdepartmental show-off match as to who was blazing and controlling what trail. And so you'll see the intermixing of these eye blazes pop up, which I think is very interesting because you have people essentially expressing a governmental spat on top of the landscape. And then finally, well, there, well there's a few more. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. You'll also see in the park boundary blazes as well. Um, and there's two types of boundary blazes that I've been able to find. Um, the Calvary, I think, was really a big fan of the boundary blazes until they started uh, putting in monuments as well as clearing the line, which that uh, so much work involved with actually cutting down miles and miles of swaths of trees. But I think from my best guess is that Calvary used both the slash blazes that you see here, but then they also used um, actual physical carvings of the boundary locations on trees. Okay. But then also, and this is kind of one of the more fun parts that I have encountered in my research, is what I like to call personal graffiti, where people would start to carve whatever they wanted to on the side of the tree. This is really interesting because, first of all, you have a Masonic symbol there. Then you also have the late date of 1877, and in the museum register, it says it was most likely carved by J.H. Hollingday. Um, and I have, because he also carved a second one, apparently this particular individual was very, wanted to make sure everyone knew he was there. Um, but there's slews and slews and slews of examples of people essentially leaving personal graffiti throughout the park um, on these trees. There's other examples as well, you know, the more famous ones being the travertine and on the, the terraces. But I think it's also interesting to note that people are transposing themselves onto the landscape, onto this material environment, on, a thing, on, on an object or on a living thing that's not going to be there forever. And they know that. 
So essentially what I came up with, and this, I'll just take a quick second. I know it's kind of difficult to see, but this is another blaze that was made. And the, it, it's, it's a name, you can see that. But here's what I think is kind of the more interesting part. Let's see if I can figure this out. Oh yeah, cool. Um, oftentimes when you have these blazes, because the tree's still alive, you have growth back over on top of the blaze. It's kind of difficult to see, but this says 1877. So this particular individual carved this, and I, it's, you know, it's really, it's probably almost impossible to tell unless you um, cord the tree as to whether, and even then I'm not sure it would be able to definitively tell, but it, it's whether or not he carved it onto an existing blaze or whether it was already there. Um, but he carved it onto a, a blaze that then grew over top of the carving. But essentially what I arrived at is there's obviously blazes and marks. So one is wayfinding. So how are they finding their way through the park? Through the blazes. And it's a Euro-American way of navigating what they like to think of, however incorrect, and it is very incorrect, way of navigating new space. Interestingly enough, in my research, there are examples of Native American tree carvings outside of Glacier. There's examples of Native American tree carvings in other places in the United States. I have not found it yet for Yellowstone. I'm not 100% sure why yet, um, but I'm, I'm hoping I'll find out someday. <laughs> but anyway, trailblazes and, and, and personal graffiti are essentially American usage or American way of navigating and marking new space. Quotation marks being very important there. So who's doing it? Who are making these blazes? Which I think is a very important and critical question. And the answer is, it's hard to tell <laughs> half the time. But for the most part, I think that there's a wide variety of groups doing this. One, obviously, there's some very, very clear examples of um, what are held up as kind of the, the, the famous explorers of Yellowstone, Washburn, Langford, um, Everett, Russell. They're, they're, they're scattered throughout history. For instance, Nathaniel Langford wrote in his 1870 diary, um, and if anybody knows the story of Langford and, and Truman Everett, they actually, and, and, and just a quick summary for those of you who don't know, Truman Everett was on this expedition with them and he got lost, um, which is an interesting comedy of tragedy of errors. Um, but they wait next to Lake Yellowstone, uh, Yellowstone Lake, for several days for him. And Nathaniel Langsford writes in his diary um, about how they're waiting for him. And he says, all of our camps for the past three days and along the line of travel between them, we have blazed the trees as a guide for Everett's. That was September 12th. So in other words, this is a commonly used tactic for Langford and the other explorers. They know to be looking for it. And they're at least assuming that Everett knows this as well, which might be a bit of a stretch for Truman Everett. Okay. Um, but there are also other examples of people in Yellowstone using trailblazes. 
Um, there is a quote from W.E. Sanders who came out of Helena, uh, essentially on with a few of his buddies from Boulder, and I think one from Butte, but Boulder, I know for sure, and Helena. And it was two or three of them when they came down through the, the Madison Valley and just decided they were just going to start, you know, looking at Yellowstone. And they go into the Firehole Basin and see all the awesome geysers. And then they are like, we want to go home. We're, we're ready to be done. <laughs> Common theme. We're ready to be done. And they're having a hard time trying to figure out how to get back to Bozeman, or actually to get to Bozeman, because they never made it there in the first place. And they get up one day, and they, they, they're running a little low on food, and they find a trail. And here's what he says about it. We followed a trail of blazed trees through a forest of dead timber and considerable fallen timber as well some five miles until we came to the wagon road which Norris, the superintendent of the National Park, is constructing. This is in 1880, right, when Superintendent Norris was first beginning a lot of his um, road work and road material. So, people of the blazes are, you know, these, these, these explorers, but I think they're also trail crews as well. There's, in, there's um, some oral history of trail crews doing this, um, and especially with the eye, different eye blazes and the interdepartmental spats, it ha you know, and it's the trail crews doing it as well. You also have, obviously, the personal graffiti, and it's kind of across the board as to who's doing that as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a very large variety of people doing this in the park. Which makes me think that it's not that uncommon of a practice. But there is definitively an evolution of these trailblazes in the park. So if we think back to, you have your slash blazes, and then you have your eye blazes. And then it becomes, and then eventually you end up with those orange metal tags and the signs that we have today. The point of it. So here's my historical point. Spatial na the, the navigation was complex and fluid, but it also relied on the natural environment in order to do that. They cannot blaze trees if there are no trees to do that. Which sounds like a very simple concept. But then, what about those ghost trails? Which, ghost trails for me is a very fluid statement right now. But essentially what it is, is it's trails that are either mapped and then aren't there, which is a very disconcerting thing to have happen to someone when they're out there and all of a sudden the trail's supposed to be there and it's not. That's kind of scary or frustrating. Or the trails that are not mapped but are there. And granted, a trail can be a very, very fluid okay, construct. It can either be constructed simply by a large herd of buffalo moving in and out of the, 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 the timber. It can also be constructed by, you know, humans through what I'm kind of starting to work with of consequence versus deliverance. So in other words, is it the trail being created because they are moving from one food source to the other? Or is it being created because they want to go see an awesome geyser that they've just heard about? 
Those two trails, I think, are can and often do intersect, but at a certain point, there is a slight difference, okay? So ghost trails, essentially, is a term for trails that are very, very closely related to the natural environment that humans don't necessarily have complete control over, okay? But then when we try and attempt to map them or attempt to race them off a map, we encounter problems. This is a 1878 proposed trail map that Superintendent, Superintendent Norris made up and submitted, I believe, with his, although I have not, I would hazard a guess that he submitted it with his report to um, Washington, but I have not necessarily confirmed that. But this is, um, and I apologize for the uh, uh, pixelation, and I wish I could get it better, but um, this is essentially a picture of the proposed trails that he wants to put into the park. This is the lake, and as we can tell, it's not 100% correct, but this is the Mirror Plateau area right now. Anyone, who know, anyone who's been on the Mirror Plateau knows that this trail isn't going to work, okay? <laughs> Uh, but Norris didn't know that because he hadn't been there. So this is an example of a ghost trail. This is an example of a trail that was mapped, but isn't there, or wasn't there in that case, but still isn't there, okay? But there's also other examples as well. For instance, if we go back, if we can think back, there's an example of the trails that I was on, or the trail that I was on, that isn't currently mapped. Nor is it still mapped. This is a this is a, a trail map from 1951, a trail familiarization map. Um, it still isn't there, although these trail outlines are a lot more accurate to what we have, what we the general outline of, of the more standard trails that we have now. So this is Pelican Cone, or I'm sorry, yeah, no, that's right, right down here, and then Crick, and then Astringent Crick is right in here. Okay, so, but it's the, the spur that we were on still isn't there. Notice also Norris's trail isn't there as well, but I think that was probably a very common sense decision. Um, and what's interesting is when you read his reports of when he begins to work with some of these uh, wagon road and trail building crews um, in, the, in 1880 and 1881 and 79 even to a point, um, he uh, finds out, you know, in this one, when he's down here in the thoroughfare, is really entertaining to read, that mm, his ideas, initial ideas, aren't going to work. He gets down here, right, you know, he wants to, you can't tell, but he, he really would very much like to put some trails down in here. And that's, and he gets down there and he's like, well, the timber's really thick and it's not that great, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway. Back to the ghost trails. So there's still a missing trail there. But the point of that is, is people are still using the natural environment in order to get around. People are not relying on maps. They're not even relying necessarily on official maps. They're relying, rather, on the natural environment in order to get around. They're relying on trailblazes, tra tra you know, skulls and trees. It's not simply pieces of paper, okay? Um, 
Ghost trails prevent, pre present an interesting conflict. There's both lasting and non-lasting effects. In other words, you can have trails that remain even if they're not mapped, and then you can have trails that are mapped that are gone. So it's, it's an interesting sort of conflict that I'm dealing with there as well, as are, interestingly enough, trailblazes, because you can have trailblazes or even personal graffiti over 100 years old, and then you can go back the next year and it's gone, either through fire, someone chopping it down, or even for that matter, um, just simply the tree dying. So it's a very, even though this is a set, what you could call a set, carved, blazed, it's there, it's permanent, but it's not. It's a very fluid way of navigating the environment. So there's some interesting sort of conflicts going on there as well. I just like this map. I, I don't know why. It just, I, I like this map. Um, I like how... Oops. Prominent, he makes the park there, which my map historian starts, inner map historian starts going, oh, that's really interesting, because he's inserting, asserting kind of the space of the park as a park instead of as a wilderness. And then this one is interesting as well, because these are all hand-drawn trails on here. And this is a trail familiarization map for, to a specific person. So in other words, someone took official maps and then hand-drew the trails on there. So you have an interesting sort of exchange of information, even in these temporal slices, even in these slices of time from these maps. They're still very fluid, yet solid at the same time. Trailblazes in the material environment are very, are they're, they're, one, they're very intimately connected. Whereas trailblazes are a human-produced object or a human-produced cultural item they, that are dependent on the material world, it's dependent on the natural environment. And you have to have, you have, they cannot be separate from each other. But what's interesting is when you have this both fluidity and this fluid space as well as this fixed space, you get result in ghost trails, you get mapped and unmapped human movement and human impact on the environment or on the land, resulting in complex spaces. So in other words, it's resulting in a space that is very complex and multi-layered. It cannot be reduced down to one trail, one blaze, one piece of land, or one map. And just because I love my dog, <laughs> and not my, my little hiking partner, there's my dog, who got very, very upset at the end of the trail and I had to carry him. So in conclusion, everyone has their war story, everyone has their trailblaze, and space is complex. <laughs> Thank you.